Well, it's a great, great delight to speak to you on this day. And all the work we put into it with Robert Hooke and to really make sure he gets the prominence and the recognition that he so greatly deserves. Hooke has suffered terribly in the hands, I think, of 20th century historians who have often projected him as Newton's understudy, the horny-handed tradesman, really, not fit to mix with proper gentlemen, and the whole Marxist rhetoric, basically. Basically speaking, I like to say to people, if you're the son of a clergyman on the Isle of Wight, you go to Westminster, then you come to Christchurch, are you exactly some kind of rough-handed oaf? <laughs> and I find I really don't get a response to that. And I also dined with bishops and with archbishops and was clearly at ease with all aspects of society, including the king himself. In 1675, his friend Sir Christopher Wren and he were walking in St. James's Park, as he said, Hook's diary, and he says, we saw his majesty and some courtiers in the distance. His majesty sent over an equerry and asked me to join them. His majesty put his arm around my neck and invited me to go into the palace to show him an experiment in his laboratory. Well, it gives you some idea of the standing of where Hooke really stood in that society. Hooke is a remarkable figure, and I think we really do need to understand his very central importance. Let me do actually his background. He was born on the 18th of July, Old Star, in Freshwater, Isle of Wight. He was the son of the Reverend John Hooke, clergyman, and a smallish, I think, Hampshire landowner. Also, too, his mother was the daughter of a merchant of braiding of the Isle of Wight. He belonged to what would be called in the 17th century the middling sort, what we call the middle class in a later day. The idea, again, of the sort of the, uh, the, 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 sort of the oath that is often projected is absolute nonsense. We know that he was a brilliant draftsman. His father taught him Latin and Greek. His father was a very distinguished scholar, we are told. His father had been tutored to the Oglander family, the leading family on the Isle of Wight. And his father died in 1648, when Hooke was 13, just at about the time of his 13th birthday. What happened to him after that is a bit muddy in certain ways. He goes up to London, and he ends up having not only spent a stint with Sir Peter Lely in his studios in London, learning the real art of the great portrait painter, but he then surfaces at Westminster School. Now, he had a wonderful connection. How did this happen? Well, we have to bear in mind that two previous incumbents of the rectory at Freshwater, Samuel Fell, and also to Cardell Goodman, less later famous, were men who almost certainly, I think, took him. Isle of Wight, Westminster, the house. And so I think at the time of the Civil War, at the time where there was a great deal of mayhem abroad, I think these two men took him in their footsteps, Isle of Wight, Westminster, here. 
exactly when he came here, it's a bit muddy. Yes, it's true that, as Julius has said, matriculates in July 31st, 1658. But he'd clearly been here for some time before that. And one useful piece of gossip about his origins here, he goes some years later to his boozing friend, his gagging friend, his fellow of the Royal Society, fellow gossip collector, the inimitable John Aubrey of Trinity. And he says in his own journal that Mr. Hook said he went up to Christchurch on a singing man's place, a pretty good maintenance. Now, I suspect he inherited or was given, and I'm defunct, as Judas said, of course, the cathedral literature was officially suppressed at that time, the full literature. He was probably given a chorister or a lay clerk's place before he matriculated. There's a lot of evidence that he was around here between 1653, when he left Westminster, and 1658, when he matriculates. He joins John Wilkins's experimental club in Wadham. He builds flying machines, and he is an amazingly diverse and ingenious gentleman. He left the Academy. Lord Clarendon gave him one in honoris causa, as a distinction, a mark of his distinction at the Restoration. So here we have a bit of a nutshell of where he comes from. Why is he so significant? Hook was a disciple of Francis Bacon, the great Lord Chancellor philosopher who emphasised the need for new knowledge and experimentation, seeing further than what the ancients had seen. This had inspired a whole number of men, Christopher Wren, John Wilkins, it would inspire here, Thomas Willis, Richard Lauer, John Locke, a whole tradition. And the idea, which was, when you think of it, almost quite shocking at the time, we could know more than the ancients. For centuries and centuries, the idea was Aristotle, Ptolemy, Plato, Galen, Celsus, all knew more than we do because they were somehow at a more pristine time of the human intellect. And as a result of that, their writings had a sacrosanct status. What happens basically is that all of a sudden, that changes in the late 15th century. It starts, I would suggest, through geography. The new great three-masted ships of the Renaissance, the discovery of America, the discovery of the Pacific Ocean, the realisation that the Atlantic and the Pacific flowed into each other. According to Ptolemy, you could have technically walked from Algeria to the South Pole. How had we discovered these things? Ships had been the first way forward. And Hook mentioned several times the importance of the ship as a metaphor of new discovery, carrying us to new ideas. And the great thing to about a ship is this. If you'd been somewhere and found something that no one had ever seen before and came home, such as, let's say, a rattlesnake in the Americas, a creature unique to the New World. And everybody laughed and said, oh, nonsense, you don't have snakes with rattles in their tails. All right, this is the point where I landed on the surface of the coast of Mexico, latitude and longitude. You go there, and you see rattlesnakes for yourself. A sort of an experimental verification. Hook is deeply aware of that. Geomagnetism starts in a big way in the late 16th century. And then the discovery of the telescope in 1609. Not I stress by Galileo, although he stole all the credit, 
the first man to observe and to draw the moon with a telescope was Thomas Harriot of Oriel, who beat Galileo to it by four months. July 1609, Galileo was at the end of November 1609. But Harriet was a modest man. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike a certain other gentleman, but that's another story. But what did the telescope show you? Galileo has to be given full credit because he published everything he saw. All of a sudden, the universe was different. Instead of there being a sphere of fixed stars, every time you made a better telescope, a six magnification, a ten, a twenty, all with the suspected lenses and tubes, you saw more and more and more and more distant stars. Could the universe be infinite? Likewise, the planets. All the planets, bar the sun and moon, are points of light to the naked eye. They are simply little dots. Suddenly, Jupiter is a ball with four little balls going around it. Likewise, Saturn is very peculiar. Sometimes it's a ball, sometimes it's like a rugby ball. Later telescopes would show that it has a ring which opened and closed. Venus shows phases that correspond to its position in relationship to the Sun. Mars is a little tiny red object which by hook's time you are seeing surface detail. The telescope is transforming natural knowledge. Ditto too. Janssen in Holland, one or two people have questioned quite who was the first inventor of the microscope, but Janssen is often considered as perhaps the first, about 1611-12, has effectively a telescope in reverse, the accrued form of microscope. And there you see things you can't see with the naked eye, even with a magnifying glass. Suddenly, you may get 20 or 30 magnifications. Now, all of a sudden, knowledge is changing. The scale of up there has changed beyond recognition. Now, the scale of what's down there is beginning to change without recognition. This, I think, is where micrographia is so important. Micrographia are some physiological descriptions of minute bodies made with the aid of magnifying glasses is not simply a book about microscopes. It's a book about physics. And two weeks ago, at the big alumni weekend, they had me, the physicists had me, talking about Hooke's physics in micrographia. There's a lot of physics there. And when you think of the flea and the fly, yes, they're there. But also, too, Hooke was not a naturalist. I got to know Hooke very, very well over the years. I've read most of what, well, everything he's published, a lot of his stuff in the Royal Society Library and Manuscript. What actually made him tick? Machinery. That is what caught Hooke's attention. And whether the machinery is clockwork, whether it's optics, whether it's useful inventions, such as heat-driven smoke jacks for chimneys, or whether it's the cardiac, systolic and diastolic actions within the heart. It's all movement and machinery. Hooke's not interested in comparing flowers or comparing living things in the way that a naturalist is. He's asking, how do they work? And how is nature full of organic machines? This comes through micrographia. Now, micrographia contains 60 observations, or what he calls schemes. These go from the very first 
which is the nature of looking at man-made objects through the microscope, a right to the moon. Come to the moon fairly shortly. Hardly a microscopic object. But what he starts by saying is, let's start looking at some man-made objects. And his microscope was like this. I built this some years ago. It does work, but it's a devil to focus, I can teach you, because it's all made of softish materials, cardboard, wood, and leather, as his was. But nonetheless, it's a testimony to his patience. Start looking at man-made objects. Let's say, start up, as he says, by a very, very finely honed knife or razor. Beautiful to look at with the naked eye. Put it under the microscope and it is rough and crude. A pin, a beautiful thin pin put under. It looks like a carrot through the microscope. Fine tabby, very, very, very fine cloth. Or Chinese silk put under. The finest fabrics we can make. It looks like coarse basket work under the microscope. Yet, he then says, I'll look with a devout man, he says, the more I look at man-made objects, the higher the magnification, the cruder and rougher they appear. Yet when I look at the objects made by God, natural objects, they become more and more and more beautiful, the more I put up them. And you can change the magnification somewhat by just altering the lens um, distances in the instrument. Now this is his first point, observation one. He then goes on to look at a number of things. Let me say, though, some of the physical objects. It's in Micrographia where Hooke first announces what we now call the wave theory of light. What did they think light was before Hooke? Not really light, but colour. Well, Ptolemy had written about it in the 2nd century AD. It had been written about by Albertus Magnus in the Middle Ages and by Ibn Haytham in uh, uh, Damascus in the Middle Ages. They all more or less agreed one thing. Light was white. Natural light coming from the heavens was, whatever it was, it was pure white. When it touched earthly things, the atmosphere, moisture in the atmosphere, Quartz, glass, anything, it corrupted it. The earth corrupted the purity of light, hence the spectrum. But nonetheless, it didn't corrupt it totally. It corrupted it always in a nice mathematical sequence, <laughs> with red at one end and burnt the other. <laughs> but what was colour? Was colour there? Or was colour some kind of perceptual thing here? 30, 40 years later, Christchurch's very own John Locke would deal with that question in an essay concerning human understanding, 1690. Well, this is what Hooke does. He starts to look at things which contain false colour under the microscope. Mica, which he calls Muscovy glass. He looks at, again, railed silk or tabby, fine, fine sheen silks which could somehow give you the little rain by diffraction, as we now know. And he looks at them under the microscope. And he finds that when he takes mica, and he takes a piece of mica, edge on, beautiful crafts of John, it's layered, just like strata of the Isle of Wight that he was familiar with. He says, could it be that when light hits the mica, it isn't just reflected off clean, 
but the different layers bend the light in different ways. In other words, you have a sort of multiple refraction, reflection. He called it inflection. Now he says this. The next thing I did was to take a bolt head, a chemist's or a chemist's bolt head, a two-foot-long kind of flask, fill it with pure water. And I may say, not that easy in London in those days. <laughs> Certainly not from the Thames. You had to let it settle for all the stuff to go to the bottom. But then, on a sunny day, wrap around it. And I've done this myself. It works. I've amplified his technique by just trying it. You take a little thing that floats, a bit of wood with a hole bored in it, put it in the top of the bolt head. Best of all, surround the bolt head with black cloth, so it's, you can see clearly inside it. You let light through the hole into the water. When you hold it in one position till the light is a fairly slight bend, you get blue light. Tilt it as it's the other way, you get red. You always get red at one extremity, and blue at the other extremity. And little glimpses of colour in between. Hook says this, light is not naturally white. Colour is probably something in the mind, but light, he says, is a pulse. It's what magnetism and gravity were the same thing. One side of the pulse, as it goes through the eye, creates a sense of blueness. The other geometrical curve, the sense of redness. And as they snake through, we have all the colours. They thought at that time, just before Lars Romer in Denmark measured the velocity of light, they thought that was instantaneous in its time. So the blues and the reds are all going on at the same time. This is the first announcement the wave theory of light. It's not the theory that you have by Thomas Young in the 19th century, where every colour had its own particular vibrative property, as we have to do. Rather, what it was is that light had one single sinusoidal wave, and depending on the geometrical plane of the wave, it produced the sensation of colour. That is in micrographia. I have called up the first major discovery in optical physics, which is one made 400 years before that, probably also in Oxford, by Friar Roger Bacon. When he had noticed that the light going into a rainbow, the light coming out of a rainbow was always 42 degrees. I call that the first law of optical physics. I think Hooke was the second. But I also do, I tell people this regarding Bacon. Do you know? I strongly suspect that the first great law of optical physics, the rainbow angle at 42 degrees, was made on the site of where Primark now stands today. Because <laughs> <laughs> that is where there was a Franciscan house in the 12th century. And Bacon was a Franciscan and probably would have lived in the Franciscan house. So if ever you're going to Primark, just say optical physics was born here. <laughs> <laughs> Back to Hook. He then takes it further. He has made a pair of glass wedges, prisms, seven and a half inches, three and a half inches, a couple of inches thick in plate glass, hollow inside. He fills one with red light, one with blue light, and then slides them across each other. Well, first of all, if he holds these up to the light, he gets blue and red. If he melts them together, he gets colours, other colours. 
He then turns to when I get the whole range of the rainbow by just sliding them alongside each other. And what does he get, of course, as all physicists would know? Blackness. A neutral density filter. He could not understand why he got it. But that would stimulate Newton to do his experiments. Because Newton, in the one of the very, very, if only ever, acknowledgement to Robert Hooke gave, when he was still young and obscure, Newton says of Hooke that his first work on colour and light, this year the Royal Society, January 1672, was first arousing me by a paradox in Mr. Hooke's micrography. Micrography, micrography. That's in the Royal Society and was published in Philosophical Transaction. So the wave theory of light and the thing that kick-started Newton are both in micrographia. That's just a bit. What about living things? Well, there's tons of stuff there. The living cell. He observes, observation 16, I think it is, of coke. He takes slivers of coke and puts them under the microscope. He's puzzled why coke is so light in its way. And he finds little, what he calls, little boxes. Now, the next thing he does is to count the boxes. Coke, of course, has some of the biggest cells in nature. He takes a cubic inch of coke and a ruler graduated to, amazingly, I think it's 30 seconds of an inch, and looks under the microscope under fairly low power at a 30 seconds and counts how many cells in a 30 seconds of an inch. How many will be in an inch? A square inch, a cubic inch. He must have made people's jaws drop. But in micrographia, he tells us, there was about a million and a half cells in one cubic inch of coke. You imagine the shock power of that. And each one beautiful, elegant, stacked, lovely. Nature was not like the ancient naturalists thought it was. It was not like Aristotle thought it was, or Dioscorides, or someone like that. He's applying mathematics to nature, and of course he calls it the word self. He terms the word self for little boxes, he also says sometimes, and he says in another publication as well, he called it this because it reminded him of cells in a prison, or in a monastery, all next to each other. What's their function? Robert Hooke is never happy by just saying, I've seen it. What does it do? Well, he was one of a group of men who were passionate advocates of Harvey's new theory of the circulation of the blood. These included his tutor, I'm sure, at one stage, Thomas Willis here in Christchurch, discoverer of the circulation circle of Willis in the brain, who I'm certain had taught him dissection, certainly taught him chemistry, and also to Richard Lauer, a contemporary student of his, pioneer of cardiology. But then, the idea was, if the heart sends blood through the body, rather than merely ebbs and flows it in the veins, as the ancients had said, so arm blood is different from leg blood and all the rest of it, but it all goes round, should this not be neutral in the rest of nature? Should there not be a pattern of design through nature? So therefore, what can the cells do for the plant? He suggests, they probably convey a succus nutrius in the Latin. 
a nourishing fluid. So that in life, in the living cork tree, the fluids passing through the cells. Rather squeezing, rather like the systolic and diastolic actions of the heart. Squeeze, 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 squeeze. Speculation. But he wants to know what the cells are for. Of course, he can only see with his microscope the biggest cells in nature. What we have to be careful of is not to attribute him with the discovery of cellular pathology. He could not see small cells. He could not see cells in the human body, for instance, only big ones in court. It is, in fact, Rudolf Wackau in Berlin in the 1850s, cellular pathology, 1858, that first puts forward our modern concept of the cell as a building block of life and cell to cell to cell, cellularly at cellularly at cellularly at cellularly and so on. But Hooke first identifies the nature of a cell, he gives it a mathematical expression, and he actually even speculates about what it does. That is in another micrographia observation. Insects. Of course, we're all familiar with the beautiful drawings of the ant and the flea. Now, you think of this. In that age, being clean, even comfortably off people, was not that easy. You imagine in winter, it's freezing cold outside, there's snow coming down. Yes, you might be able to afford to have some hot water put in a tub in your house, but did you want to take all your clothes up with the wind howling through the windows and all the rest of it? No. We, without putting too fine a point on it, and we find this in Samuel Pepys's diary, even the houses of the substantially off were often pretty verminous. Pepys mentions on one occasion finding a new periwig in the corner of his room one morning, where the rats had dragged it off the sideboard during the night. And, of course, lots of references to scratching. You imagine you see a flea this size in micrographia. <laughs> what it must have done to your imagination. And Hooke describes its detail. He describes its very long back legs. Good for jumping, good for leaping. It is an amazing piece of draftsmanship done with an instrument like that. He also asserts its armour. Why is it so armour-plated? So rather like a tank or even medieval body armour. The plates could slide around each other. For something as small, as insignificant as a flea. What a miracle of engineering. And its little claws who could jump and hold on to you. Well, he actually says in micrographia that by means of magnifying glasses, we could make a flea of the size of a lion. Now, that is pretty thinkable. Where would you have seen the lion in his day? Tower of London. The king's beasts in the Tower of London. The early, earliest zoo in London. Well, foreign monarchs would often give exotic animals to each other. So, therefore, we have the flea. But my favourite is not the flea. It's the housefly, the common, what he calls, blue fly, the blue bottle. Now, he starts to ask, why do blue bottles buzz, whereas moths and butterflies don't? A moth's wing goes like that. A fly's wing goes so fast you can't see it. The buzz is caused by the, the rapid motion. It's passion for vibration, light, light, pulses, 
creates a shockwave in the air. But how does a butterfly fly? And how does a fly fly? For it goes now from observations of the insect through the microscope to the engineering of insect bodies. And I would say that his observation of the blue fly is the first major treatise on aeronautical engineering. Let's see what he says about them. Well, butterflies can just do this very, very gently because they have big wings. They go very slowly. And they are what he called downy. In other words, you get um, powdery stuff off their wings. He wonders whether these might be like little sacks or bags that hold the air. It'd be like if you have a barrel floating and you hold on to it, it will hold you up. So it will sort of give you a lift already. Flies, on the other hand, have hard and, as he says, glassy wings. Those wings will hold no air. And a fly has two major wings and sometimes a pair of smaller ones. Now, he says, the wings can only sustain a fly by very, very rapid motion. This goes back to his early experiments on flying machines, both at Westminster School and also to here with Wad at Wadham with John Wilkins, where he made flying machines, we are told. What he suggests is this, is that the downward motion and the upward motion cause changes in air pressure. Things which he and Boyle had been working on at Deep Hall, down the high, five, six years before. Air is a compressible material. Air is not a uniform classical element. It can change in consistency. But it can be like a cushion, a bounce you, or it can drop you. Does the fly fly by the extreme speed of its wings, compressing a sort of cushion of air beneath it, it would take it up. Now, this is where he really applies experimentation. First, catch a vigorous young blue fly on a summer's day. <laughs> Try this too. <laughs> Take something like a, a little uh, a plastic cup, see one on the window, creep up behind it, <laughs> if you're lucky. Now, if you then have a little hole in the bottom of the cup, and you take, let's say, a pencil, he used the un unsharpened end of a quill pen, he says, with a spot of glue. And it works better if you put a bit of sugar to attract the fly. Like one fly, you've got, and you've got it, it can't get away. <laughs> take it out, then you take it, hold it upright, there's the fly on the end. Hold it, let's say, level. Tilt it, so the fly thinks it's going up. And he's getting different musical pictures. And it's not for nothing that he had learned to play the organ at Westminster School or come up to Christchurch on what was said to be a singing man's place. He had good musical ears, maybe perfect pitch. There's a lot of references to music in his life as well. He loved music. What he's now trying to do is to say how much the pitch relates to the vibration. Now, of course, every musician would have known this, especially a scientifically minded one. You play your viol or whatever it was, certain pitches correspond to certain vibrations of strings. Now, we don't quite know how he went the next stage. 
But a year after publishing this in Micrographia, in August, 8th of August, 1666, he's having dinner and drinking with his pal Samuel Pepys in London. And Pepys calls in his diary. Mr. Pepys did tell, Mr. Hook did tell me how a fly did fly. Vi vibrations. And measured vibrations. But I cannot remember exactly the details. <laughs> <laughs> That's Sam Pepys. We do know elsewhere, though, in the Royal Society, what they were playing at at that time. You take a long rope, like a long washing line, a sort of windlass where you can tension it really, really tight. And you see, going along it. Stopwatches were available at that period. John Wallace, here in Oxford, had one timing storms in the 1660s. Could you, therefore, learn to get a string that went to a particular <coughs> G-sharp, two octaves down, something like that. Calculate the period of time when it went from one end of the rope to the other. And then, if the fly is doing a G-sharp, let's say three octaves above middle C, just do your mathematics. So you could calculate how many times a minute the fly beats it. Pete says, he told me many thousand times per minute, but I cannot remember how. Hook had clearly tried to quantify the vibrations of a fly's wings to correspond to its ability to fly upright, forwards, and so on. He was even interested in the respiratory system of flies. He thought the two little things hanging down beneath a fly's body, which we now know actually are its gyroscopes, actually were like lungs, which are let air in, let air in, like that. Like the two little valves. It was fascinated also by valves, because valves moved in cyclical motions as well, you see. The eye. He looks at the eye of flies. Each little tiny pixel is a lens. That's why they can see all the way around. You imagine you get all of this out of one pestiferous insect. <laughs> Biology, respiration, engineering, mathematics, optics. That's how Robert Hooke thought. And we have many other things he was dealing with also. Let me see the clock. Many other things he was dealing with too. Let's say, take observations 58 and 59 at the very end of micrographia, which have nothing to do with microscopes. These are about the heavens. But it's correct in the book because the, the title page says, by magnifying glasses, so the optical discoveries. Observation 59, on the infinity of the fixed stars. He compares his observations with a 12-foot focal length telescope and his 36-foot focal length telescope with the observations reported by Galileo in Sidereus Nuncius, in 1610. Galileo, he tells us, could see 36 stars in the Pleiades cluster with the naked eye. An ordinary person could only see five or six with the naked eye. With the telescope, Galileo sees 36. With my 12-foot telescope, I saw 78. With my 36-foot telescope, I could not count them. Now, what is a star cluster? What is the Pleiades? And why is it that every time we make a more powerful telescope, 
If we notice 36 foot telescope had a three and a half inch object glass, he tells us that. Three and a half fingers broad, he calls it. 36 feet photo that you see stars you could never have imagined. How far does the universe go? Then, they knew very few nebulae in Hooke's time, but the one that was really well known was the nebula in Orion, which of course is the only one just about visible to the naked. Well, Andromeda is occasionally a bit visible on a good night, but Andromeda, but the, the, the one in uh, Orion is fairly good. You see it in about a month's time. In fact, I saw it for the first time this winter in the early hours of, was it Monday morning, when we got up to observe the eclipse. And saw the eclipse, and there is Orion coming out of a spectacular sky. It's just about visible as a sort of milkiness in the sky. What was it? Was the nebula, a body of stars, so far away that you couldn't actually see individual ones, apart from a tiny number, or was it made of, as William Herschel would speculate a century later, what he called flocculescent matter? Glowing, fuzzy vagueness. The problem was at that time, they had no intellectual or scientific tools to do with the concept of vague fluffiness in space. I think they knew it was a discrete point of light, not a fluffy point of light. But in the middle of the Orion Nebula is a thing called the trapezium, a little cluster of stars, tiny little thing. In the trapezium, there are quite a lot of stars. But he says, Galileo could only see, I think it was two stars in the trapezium. Christian Huygens, the great Dutch scientist, ten years before, in Systema Saturni, 1659, could see four. I can see five. How many are there there? The instrument gets better and better. Huygens' telescope is better than Galileo's. Mine is better than Huygens's. And you see more. How vast and how beautiful is the creation? And why this fluffy mass do you have this little tiny clutch of stars close together? Are they all fellows in the same part of the sky? Or are they spread through space and we are seeing them through a line of sight effect? You imagine this is absolutely cutting-edge cosmology. It's about size, scale, distance, luminosity, brightness, and so on. That is observation 59. Observation 60 really is an amazing one. Observation 60 is simply called of the moon. He draws for the first time ever a single lunar crater under high magnification. Moon maps are common at that time. Havelius' celebrograph here a few years before, Van Langren, Wargentin, moon maps are common. And of course, the earliest done by Thomas Harriot. But the key thing is, they drawn the whole moon, or phases of the moon. What about one single small formation? He drew the creator, Hipparchus. Now, let me say where Hipparchus is. Look at a full moon, or a, a, a dichotomy half moon, and it's pretty well bang in the middle of the moon. He drew it at a waning moon, so he must have drawn it at maybe two or three o'clock in the morning, as the waning moon is rising, and he drew it, and it, the, the picture is about 90 arc seconds, one way, 
and 30 arc seconds the other way. To give you some idea of scale, you imagine about a 30th. See the moon in the sky, about a 30th of the moon. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny angle. Friend of mine in Sheffield some years ago tried to calculate the magnification of Hooke's telescope. And he calculated it's about 173 magnification to show that lovely. That's pretty good for a telescope 36 feet long on a pole on hopefully a dead calm night. You imagine taking 36 feet of drain pipe, putting them on a flagpole or looking through them. Gives you some idea. But what he saw on that was amazing. Not only the crater, but little craterlets inside the main crater. And all sorts of mountainous material and detritus all the way around. And he published it in what was called Scheme 38, the last plate in micrographia. Next of all, I've seen the crater and other craters like it. How did they come about? It's no use saying there's nature. Hooks says, where did it come from? Yes, God made it. But what were the intermediary processing? Nature, he says, is a machine that's sort of self-sustaining, self-creating, just like a clock. He does an experiment, which some years ago I did on the sky up night with Sir Patrick Moore. We had great fun with this. He says, I took a tub of well-tempered pipe clay, thick, viscous pipe clay. And I dropped into it pistol balls with considerable height. <coughs> Probably at Gresham College, London, where he was now professor of geometry. He said there was a 27-foot drop. Um, you drop a pistol ball half an inch in diameter. <coughs> it produced a beautiful circular crater, ramparts, and the viscous stuff came up in the middle, give you a little central mountain. Could the moon's craters have been formed by impact from space. Still one of the models being discussed today. But he says, I'm a bit cautious on that. In the 17th century, they believed that space is what you might call clean. They thought that meteorites were simply things evicted from volcanoes falling back down again. They knew nothing of asteroids. They thought space was clean apart from the planets. So therefore, if the moon's craters were being formed by these Blobs. What were the blobs and where did they come from? He then goes another one and founds lunar geology. He says, I took a pot of boiling alabaster. Pretty dangerous stuff to play with. This is in his lab in Gresham, part of the Royal Society. And took a pair of bellows. I didn't try this with Patrick Moore because the BBC wouldn't allow it. That's another story. <laughs> Stick the nozzle of the bellows in. Pump. Very, very thick stuff. Bubbles will slowly come to the top. Ramparts, central mountain, just like lunar craters. And if you want to try the early one, you don't need to use pipe clay, thick custard, or anything like that. I ran it with Patrick, drop a child's marble from about 10 feet, or as I did on one occasion with Patrick, a catapult. You'd get beauties with a catapult. <laughs> Yet he's experimenting on how to make lunar craters in the lab. I say that micrographia is the foundation stone of laboratory astronomy. Modern scientists model 
astronomical phenomena, the surface of Mars, the primordial soup, things of this, in the lab. Hooke is the father of it. So therefore, he says, it could be craters formed by falling objects, it could be internal, what he calls the moon's fiery interior. They knew the Earth had a fiery interior because he says that many of these craters look like Etna and Pico Tenerife and, several, and Hecla and one or two well-known terrestrial volcanoes. And they're known to be caused by heat bubbling up from below. Could these be the same? Who was, didn't say this in micrographia, he was also a pioneer of geology and openly taught of an ancient Earth which had actually been formed by internal heat. You may wonder how it, that actually squared with theological questions, no problem at all. What he argues with the situation is that the world we know it today, the present form of life, Adam and Eve and so on, was the last 6,000 years of that phenomenon. But between the creation in Genesis and Adam and Eve, there could have been, goodness knows, how many centuries in the middle, where physical processes moulded the earth. And if you think that that might have got hooked into any kind of theological trouble, well, not only was the Royal Society full of bishops, but in 1691, when his old friend, John Tillotson, FRS, became Archbishop of Canterbury, one of the first things he did was give Hook a Lambeth MD degree, which is, in my view, what you call disapproval. <laughs> so therefore, in micrographia, you have aeronautical engineering. You have a fascination with machinery. You ask why cells hold things together. Why are man-made objects crude and compared to the microscope? And you also have two. What is the universe? Perhaps where did it come from? Minerals and fossils are also discovered in it as well. And Hooke was firmly of the view that fossils were former living things. They are not um, twists and the twirls in the rock. He had firm ideas on that one. So when micrographia comes out, it just causes a sensation. And in fact, Samuel Pepys recorded in his diary, 21st of January, 1665, just a week before he had bespoken a copy of Hooke's book from his publisher, from his bookseller. And on the 21st of January, cold, wintry weather, according to the rest of the diary passages, he sat up till 2 o'clock in the morning reading. He could not put it down. Pepys, a senior civil servant, at that time, client of the axe to the Admiralty, one of the leading people in the Navy, the Navy administration. Yet he could not put this book down. Hook, therefore, is a figure of extraordinary talent and amazement. And when he's doing this, he's still only 30 years old. He has another 38 years ahead of him where he will amplify what he does, he will do more and more and more. He was a scientist of global significance. He corresponded with Leiden, with Bologna, with Paris, with all over. And he was also highly, highly convivial. The myth of Hook, the poisoned old recluse, is again a fabrication. Simply read his diary. Read all of his capers with his friends and old Royal Society meeting, and we went to a certain tavern afterwards and we did drink and we did. He enjoyed the fun and games. 
I even think I can pin down what he died from. I'll not be strickling, be assisted by Dr. Richard Whittington, the retired coroner for Birmingham and a member of Oriel. There's a two-page account of Hook's last few weeks. And uh, some years ago, I got this copy and I showed it to Richard Whittington and asked, could you, you know, give a sort of suggestion about the death? I suspected diabetes and heart failure from the symptoms he'd had. He's had um, optical defects, first of all, which corresponded to diabetic blindness, I suspect, and also, although very thin and abstemious, swelling legs. Again, cardiac failure, chronic cardiac, CCF, chronic cardiac failure. Richard gave me a five-page coroner's report. <laughs> Headed, speculation, speculation, speculation. Obviously, he tells us things which are useful. He doesn't tell us key things that a modern doctor would want to know. But let's put all this together. A massively, massively experienced pathologist. Yes, cardiac failure, probably diabetes, probably to cardiac arrhythmia, and a whole list of them. Also to probably, as well, problems due to neurological difficulties. Really, he fell downstairs once and he was, I often find it sometimes hard to stand up. Probably neurological difficulties too. And I have this lovely report, which Richard Whittington and his wife did over Christmas some years ago for him. <laughs> well, now have the pictures. This is Robert Hook. We don't actually have a surviving authentic portrait. And various ones have been suggested, and, Rita and uh, uh, Lisa Jardine has suggested one. The picture put forward by Lisa Jardine in her book on the man who knew too much has now been utterly proven beyond doubt to be his older contemporary, Johannes Baptista van Helmont, the famous Flemish chemist. So this is the nearest, done by Rita Greer, a modern portrait painter who herself has become a hookophile. And she has become fascinated by Hook. I wrote in 2003 an article in the Daily Telegraph on Robert Hook's tercentenary. She read the Telegraph. She wrote to me, can you give me all the details of his appearance? Yes, John Aubrey describes him well. Richard Waller, his friend, describes him well. Pen portraits. This was the result. Thin face, small chin, small mouth, gingery hair, Pale complexion, bluey grey eyes, and I reckon this is about as near as we'll get to hook at about 45. Which, uh, uh, which one do you press, man? Oh, here. Oh, oh sorry. No. Uh, get it backwards, shall we? Oh. How do you get it backwards, please, sir? Sorry about him. No, no, no. Oh, there. Oh, I should do that. Yes, right, do lovely. That. Uh, tell me when you want to change. You've got about uh, okay. Uh, right. Uh, the, the previous one, please. There we go. Uh, Rita Gray's portrait with the various things on the table with him, the ammonite shells, his spring and such. Next one, please. Rita's superb reconstruction of the laboratory with Boyle, Hook in the pink coat, and this is a laboratory, deep hall, where Boyle lived on the high street. And it's there, of course, where the plaque now is on the wall. The house was demolished in 1808. 
where they put a spectacular error where the living cell was discovered. No, he discovers the living cell at Gresham in London, but that's another soup. Next one, please, Martin. This is a lovely one, she did, of the flea, the microscope, the ammonites, the long telescope, comet. I can't really say about comets, that's another story. And the first of the moon. Next one, please. Gresham College, London, for a print of 1774. We know that Hooke lived in the top right-hand corner of the quadrant. And that little thing on the roof was his gazebo, where he used to observe. Next one, please. The title page of Micrographia. Notice magnifying glasses. That's the key thing. Minute bodies. Minute body could be a flea. It could be Jupiter, as seen with the naked eye. Next one, please. The famous microscope and the optical illumination system. Next one, please. This, of course, is the basis of me building this. Next one, please. My own little piece here. Uh, it's rather surprising that this little thing was in an exhibition in the Bodleian uh, to celebrate Oxford medical history some years ago. But rather curious. I made this at my mother's house 40 years ago. Uh, to see it then treat it as an antique in an exhibition. Which <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it works. Yes, so here is my reconstruction of a rather small plate in micrograph here, which is not very easy to see. The bolt head. Tilt, red and blue. And of course you can get the intermediary colours as well. Yes, one, please. His lens-making machine is proposed improvement for making lenses. Two belt drives, probably two boys sort of turning um, uh, mandrels around. And he said that this gave you a much better and a more consistent curvature of the lens. Next one, please. This is plate or scheme 38. That is Hipparchus up there. And it is superb. Look also too, even here we have little inset drawings of craters on there. And here is the Pleiades. A mere 78 stars in it. Next one, please. Now, some years ago, a friend of mine in Yorkshire, Gay Lee, a very, very serious amateur astronomer with a real state-of-the-art kit, he photographed Hipparchus at exactly the same lunar phase. That is Gay Lee's photograph. That is Hook's drawing. It's not bad, is it? <laughs> that gives you some idea of the quality of his telescope, his skill as a draftsman, all sorts of things about him. Next one, please. Another Rita's lovely pictures, so they're preparing the 36-foot telescope for observation. This actually is from a particular occasion in August 1666, just before the Great Fire. Next one, please. Now, this is the scheme one. Razor blade, spark from flint, point of a very, very, very sharp pen. Don't they look rough and crude? Next one, please. Cork. Those are the cells. The little boxes, he says, convey the succus nutrius, he speculates, just in the way that the arteries and the veins, with their valves, take the blood through the human body. Next one, please. Mould. You imagine seeing that, or perhaps you're eating a piece of meat, which has, of course, not been anywhere near a fridge, and maybe for an animal which has been dead two weeks, and you're sort of clearing a bit like that. You've had a garden on it. 
Yes, John, please. Water crystals. In fact, this is frozen urine. He actually points you always yet to six corners. That was not his discovery. Kepler, in 1611, had published an essay on the six-cornered snowflake. Why is it that every snowflake on a black coat on a winter's day, looked at with a magnifying glass, always has six perfect angles? What is it that does it? He suggests it's the atomic structure of water. And that the atomic structure means that they all come together in a particular way to give you the shape. You always only get 60 degrees like this and 60 degrees branches of it. So 60, 60, 60. Everywhere, 60 degrees. He sees this too as part of divine design. Yes, one piece. This is a feather. The beautiful structure, again, of feathers catching the air. Why is a feather, let's say, lighter than a piece of paper of the same size? Yes, one piece. The famous flea. You imagine reading that on a winter's, early hours of a winter's morning, when you've only probably had half a dozen glasses of flour and you're itching. <laughs> it's a lovely long later. Do you know a fly, I think, I understand a flea can leap 40 times its body length. Not bad. And then hold on with the little claws at the front. What a piece of natural engineering. That's one piece. The ant, another thing he said is in detail as well. The way in which the whole structure of the body and the leverage of the legs. He inherits this from Vesalius in the 17th century, who uh, the 16th century, who would argue that the skeleton was to the body as tent poles are to a tent. So you study the structure that holds it together before you look at anything else. Next one, please. The fly. Look at that, and a removed fly's wings. What a beautiful drug. This is aeronautical engineering. Those great eyes. The next one, please. Look at those eyes. That must have been a shocker for anybody seeing that picture. Next one, please. Another of Rita's beautiful pictures, this picture is in Christchurch. The picture was actually done some years ago as a gift to the college. It shows Hook in whatever rooms he was in. And around him, of course, all of his future inventions. It's a sort of mannerist picture. The barometer, the microscope, even the interior of the Dome of St. Paul's, the cycloidal curve with which he worked 20 years later with his great friend Sir Crerut. As you to put in a giant Sir Crerut, Sir Christopher Wren. Next one, please. And there we are. Here we are. Oh, shall we have it back? I love it. And that he is in Christchurch, I think he's in Roger Davis's rooms. And here we are, ladies and gentlemen, this is Michael Graffier. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.